The Progressive Ideas Network proudly presents the Thinking Big series. Conversations on ideas and actions for the 21st century with the authors of Thinking Big, Progressive Ideas for a New Era. This series is moderated by Patrick O'Heffernan. Welcome to Thinking Big. This is podcast number two, and we are talking with Andrea Batista Schlesinger, the executive director of the Drum Major Institute, and Dean Baker, co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Andrea and Dean are contributors to the book, Thinking Big, Progressive Ideas for a New Era. In this podcast, they talk about taking action to turn the current financial crisis into a moment of opportunity that will strengthen the middle class. And they give some survival advice to the Republicans in Congress. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan, and we are Thinking Big. Dean and Andrea, welcome to Thinking Big. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Dean, I'd like to start with you. In Chapter 6, you talk about the crisis that the nation is in. Could you give us a little thumbnail of how you see that crisis and how you think we got here? Well, the crisis is we had a collapse of an $8 trillion housing bubble. This was, That comes to $110,000 for every homeowner in the country. And what that's done is, on one hand, destroy the residential construction market. That was about, we lost about $450 billion a year in demand. More importantly, we wiped out people's wealth, most people, their, their house is their main source of savings, and people just seen 110,000 of equity disappear on average, and as a result of that, they've cut back their consumption hugely, and that's what's responsible for this downturn, and that's why we're seeing unemployment go through the roof. People aren't buying anything, and home, home construction has gone through the floor. We got here by letting this bubble grow. We just, the, the Federal Reserve Board was totally complicit. It, at the very least uh, negligent, but I would say actually complicit in letting the bubble grow, letting all these lending practices go on, either ignoring them or actively promoting them. This was an astounding uh, failure of regulation to, to let this go on, and the results were entirely predictable to anyone who was paying attention. Andrea, the crisis that Dean's described is financial, but from the standpoint of the average American, including the $110,000 that has disappeared from his or her wealth, there's been kind of a larger crisis brewing for many years, and that's the weakening of the middle class. Now, your chapter talks about that. I wonder, could you tell us what's happened to our middle class standard of living in this country? I think that the middle class has never been in this country a naturally occurring phenomenon. We created the middle class through very progressive public policies, promoting unionization, for example, access to higher education, um, access to housing. What has happened is in the, in the intervening time, as the conservative right has succeeded in better f- in framing our relationship to, to government, the, each of these factors that was responsible for creating the middle class has become less of a priority for government. And so what we've had for a long time is, is growing unease and anxiety that preceded the crisis with the cost of health care and education skyrocketing wages not keeping up despite increases in productivity. You know, we've had uh, families that are squeezed and forced to make very difficult uh, decisions, and not even just about how much people earn, but whether or not the things that we have come to take for granted as uh, defining a middle-class standard of living, knowing that you can put your kids through college, knowing you can take care of your elderly parent, uh, knowing you can retire with dignity, those things that became real through a progressive approach to governing and became part of our, our uh, common belief of what it means to attain the American dream, 
were no longer a given. And, and that's what I think has happened to our, our middle class. And unfortunately, in great part because of the factors that Dean describes, we now have a situation in which the middle class is, is struggling to hold on to their position, which has been, had been financed for too long on home values and, and credit card debt. It seems like the country has lost its sense of community, which when I was a kid was sort of the foundation of the middle class. We all looked out for one another. And it's also a basic progressive value that you talk about in the book here. Where has that community sense gone and how do we get it back? Part of the story is that people have much less stable lives today. The idea that you're going to work at the same place for 20 or 30 years, that's become unheard of now. You just don't have that sort of stability in employment. And often what goes with changing jobs is moving. Uh, people are more mobile today. Can we get back to a situation where we do have more people staying in areas more, or at least if they want to? I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with moving. I've done many times myself. But just to at least have that option, um, in principle, we can. But I think we're a long, long way from getting there. We have to try to rebuild the sorts of institutional supports that we had say, 30 or 40 years ago, and the most obvious one, I mean, there's lots of things we'd want to see change, but the most obvious one, I would just say, is rebuilding the labor movement. If people have, workers have their right to organize, to join unions if they want to, I think that would be a huge factor in increasing economic security for workers and increasing the sense of community that many people had in years past. And I think there's also something that is happening, which we try to address in the book, which is a disconnect between people and policy. And ultimately, I think that's the point of this book, is to engage people in a conversation that extends beyond the beltway and conversations about specific pieces of legislation. How engaged are, are people in particular? You know, it was always assumed that the middle class it was this, this bulwark in it for democracy, in part because they had the leisure and uh, the income to be more involved in their democracy. And that's no longer a given. And the chapter that Miles Rappaport writes, you see some of the challenges to fulfilling our obligations as citizens. But, you know, uh, the Drum Major Institute, for example, did a poll recently, and we asked uh, middle class, specifically middle class respondents, how they wanted their representative of Congress to vote on a series of bills, progressive legislation, um, the Employee Free Choice Act, expanding S-CHIP. And the answer, Republicans and Democrats, overwhelmingly was, uh, we wanted our, our representative to vote yes. We asked, how did your representative vote? Overwhelmingly, no idea. There is a disconnect that uh, has creeped up the, the economic ladder that I think is very dangerous because without an engaged population, without an engaged citizenry, there is very little opportunity for us to mobilize to actually get these policies passed. It's one thing to vote for a candidate and to see a political victory. It's another thing to have people who are um, engaged enough in a conversation about their future that they know that supporting uh, the Employee Free Choice Act, for example, is in their best interest. And I think that quality, that engagement in the news, that connection to government representatives, is that even you see it even in the demise of civics education, is that that quality is missing. And I don't know if that's about community or democracy or both, but I think it's definitely related to what we're trying to overcome in this book, which is to get people thinking again about the policies that affect the quality of their lives. Has the conservative framing of government as the problem um, contributed to that? I would say both the conservative framing and our acceptance of that framing, because the conservatives want the government to intervene in all sorts of different ways to, to push income upwards. So, for example, the trade policies, which they like to call free trade, they're anything but free trade. There's all sorts of protection that they leave in place or, in some cases, actively promote uh, patent protection on prescription drugs, for example. That's a major part 
of most recent trade agreements. That's as protectionism as protectionist as you can get. It's a very expensive form of protectionism. But they pretend that this is somehow free trade. But the point of these policies is to, to push income upwards. And there's a wide variety of policies that conservatives have promoted where they have the government actively involved in the economy pushing income upwards. But they always present this image of themselves as, oh, no, this is just the market. And unfortunately, many progressives have accepted that. And the conservatives are, in fact, uh, terrified of a free market. Take a look at the bank bailouts now. I haven't seen many conservatives jumping up and down on Wall Street saying, don't give us your money. They're saying, give us all you can. (laughs) And then they're giving it away in bonuses. Of course. Why would we expect anything otherwise? <laughs> Both of you have, have mentioned unions, and Andre, you talk about unions in, in your chapter, Chapter 10. What's the relationship of unions to the middle class in a nation whose economy is based on ideas, not on manufacturing? Or is that a myth, that it really is based on manufacturing? I don't know if it's fact or myth. I think it's a choice. I think that's when we talk about our trade policy, when we talk about the, in, the incentives Again, it's not a natural trend that our, our economy increasingly gears towards service with the, the lowest paying jobs, with the least protection. These are the result of decisions that relate to our trade policies. But I think it's particularly important to talk about unionization now because the, the decision about whether or not to pass the Employee Free Choice Act is on the table. The, the right and the Republicans are gearing up uh, to talk about how this is absolutely the wrong moment to do that because we're in economic crisis, of course. You know, and, uh, and I think Dean would agree this is absolutely the right moment to do that because now is the moment to assert that um, unions uh, allow, uh, protect workers, enable them to not only make more money but to have a better uh, quality of job. There's no reason that a bad job needs to be a bad job. Uh, this is a conversation that we should be having as part of the stimulus conversation. It's not just about three million jobs. It's what kinds of jobs. How do those jobs pay? What benefits do those jobs come with? Do those jobs offer paid family leave and sick days and the other things that, that would enable people to, to truly live middle-class standards of living? So I think now is more important than ever to, to make a case for, uh, for unions as a necessary balance in the, in the conversation between uh, government and, and, and the market. Dean, do you, do you think we have an opportunity to do that now? Yes, certainly we do. If we're going to have an opportunity to to get this legislation through Congress, I think this is as good as any. And exactly as Andreas said, the point here is that unions don't just uh, increase wages and benefits, but they provide worker security, people with security in their lives. And that matters a huge amount to people in a world where, at the moment at least, so many not just lower-income people, but middle-income people don't feel at all secure. So it's now better than ever. And again, the precedent, of course, was the Depression, where that was the heyday of union organizing. We had this massive wave of organizing around the CIO unions. And uh, I don't know if we'll get the same thing now, but certainly people's response to the Depression was given the opportunity when the government allowed them to freely choose a union and be recognized. People took that option in droves. At that point in our history, Unemployment rate was at 25%. Does that mean that we have to wait until this crisis reaches that kind of a level before we can get it through the the heads of people in Congress that we need these kinds of uh, benefits? Well, I sure hope not. At this point, I think what we're arguing about is can you get uh, enough votes to overcome a Republican filibuster in the Senate? And that's obviously going to be a real battle. certainly hope we don't have to get 25% unemployment, but I think that... uh, yeah, effective organizing can certainly bring about that outcome. You know, now is the time to have conversations like this, which is, I, I think, the purpose that this book serves. 
what kind of jobs do we want to see? What, what kind of security do we want workers to have? What are our values when, they, when it comes to, to work? Some of these conversations extend beyond this particular moment. You know, we need to get back to those core questions, which is where this crisis began. Um, so I think there are conversations that now we should have that can direct the direction of not only this, the short term, the stimulus, but, but long term. And I think we need to have that conversation. We need to, it's a great thing that we can use this crisis as, um, as a way to get some bigger picture things done. But I think unless we engage in that national conversation, we're going to have a repeat of the Clinton administration where you had a few progressive victories, but at the end of it, you didn't fundamentally change the relationship between people and their government. Well, both of you in your chapters have called for bold government action, which sounds like it's different than having a conversation. Is it different than having a conversation? Can we do both? Should we be doing both? And what kind of bold government action do we really need now other than the Employee Free Choice Act? Obviously, we need bold government action, but we need that, that has to come with popular support. And we can think of all sorts of areas, I think, where bold government actions called for. One is reforming our health care system, having universal health care insurance, and also having affordable health care, because as it stands now, if our health care costs continue to rise, uh, as the government's projecting, it's going to bankrupt the country. Um, one of the main reasons that the domestic auto industry is on its back is because our health care costs are twice what they are in Canada, Japan, Europe, and uh, you simply can't sustain that, and it's getting worse every year by the year. So that's a case where certainly bold government actions called for. Um, another issue where I'd love to see bold government action, it could be done through unions also, but getting to a situation where we have shorter work weeks, where we have everyone can count on vacation time, paid time off for family leave, for sick days. There's a long list of areas like that where we're well behind the rest of the world. and. Obviously, uh, we will need serious discussions in terms of, you know, what goals we should be looking for, we should be striving for politically. But at the end of the day, obviously, the government will have to play a role in this. Andrea, what do you think of bold government actions that are necessary now? Or are they necessary now, or should we continue to talk? They go together. I don't see that there is, there's a choice here uh, to make these. The, both need to happen simultaneously. I think that the president's efforts to hold these house parties on stimulus and as he did on health care. Very exciting. You know, you're engaging people in a policy conversation, not just saying, come out and vote. That bodes well. But there's no reason that those things need to be, that there needs to be a choice between those, those two things happening. They, they need to happen together. Well, Dean Baker and Andrea Batista Schlesinger, I want to thank you for joining us in the studio today for Thinking Big. And uh, I want to thank you for sharing your progressive ideas for the 21st century. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. And I want to thank our listeners for being here and for going to www.thinkingbigthebook.com where you can continue this conversation. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan in the studio. Thank you for listening to this edition of Thinking Big, conversations on progressive ideas and action for the 21st century. It's been moderated by Patrick O'Heffernan. All rights reserved by inthestudio.com 2009. Remember to stop by thinkingbigthebook.com to meet the authors, purchase your copy of Thinking Big, and join the conversation on our blog.